Is he wonderful to you? Is it just more than words to an emotional song? Is it true for you? Is he wonderful? And see, here's the deal. Whether he's wonderful or not to you, he's wonderful. The to you part just means you get to experience it. And so for us today, the debate is not, is God wonderful? Is do I see him as he is? Is what matters and is what counts. We're going to get into our word today. We will be looking in John chapter 4, though our reading is from verse 19 to 26. We will be looking at the chapter, verses 4 through 26. It's a very familiar text. I would encourage you, do not let the familiarity of the text cause you to tune out. Don't say this morning, I know this already. Because we know there are inexhaustible riches from the scripture as the spirit of God speaks through his word to our hearts as we hear it. And we could hear something again and end up hearing something fresh because of what the Lord is doing in our lives. And so you and I go back to the same scripture all the time. And, and, and then all of a sudden we go, I've not seen that before. What, you've not seen those words? Well, yes, you have. Thank you, brother. I've, I've not seen, you've seen those words. But the Spirit of God brought to life those words in your life, and now all of a sudden you see something fresh. And I know you're tempted to say it's a new revelation. No. No. It's always been there. It's just new to you. That's like that car that you bought. And although it's 2019, you may have bought a 2015 and someone says, is that new? And you go, new to me. No, that car existed before you. And just like that with God's word, that what that meant and what he wanted it and what he intended it to mean had its meaning when it was given. But for you and I, he illuminated our minds and our hearts, and he lets us see something fresh. And so this morning, I say that, please, to not let it cause you to tune out, but maybe to tune in and see what fresh does the Lord have in store for me. Can we stand as we read his word? <clears throat> and let's read together from verse 19. The woman said to him, sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship and in truth, and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. 
When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. Let's be seated. Father, as we get into your word, I pray indeed that we would allow our hearts, Lord, to be touched, that we would allow ourselves to hear from you, that we would be open to what you are saying, even if it causes discomfort and pain. Lord, may we allow you to change us through our obedience to your word. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> In this particular story, and we know, I wanted to start off this year for us in that, in, in, was thinking through how do we want to and how will we focus our attention for this new year? Where do I want our eyes? Where do I want us to, to, to rest our focus? Last week with our brother Mike, we, we, we heard about a resolution to remain. And I thought that was great because he really led us to, to saying in all the things that we promise, all the things that we are committed to do, that we commit, and he was out of John, to remaining in Christ. And because that's where your life is. And he led us down through the scripture to, <clears throat> to how to remain and why we remain. And this morning, I want us to look at as we remain, I want to ask the question, who will you worship? Or I should say, who or what will you worship? I think the ultimate goal is in the who, but some of us, it's a what. And I want to title for this morning that God is seeking, God seeks or calls for, demands for true worshipers. And as I said earlier, when we talk about worship, we are not talking about just that thing you do on that day of the week, whatever day it is, Saturday or Sunday, where you come together with, with a lot of different people, many of whom you don't know, and you sing some songs, and you hear some announcements, and you, and, um, and, and you sing some more songs, and you hear the word, and you may talk to a few people, and then you go home. And we think, I've done worship for the week. And what God wants us to realize is that worship is not weekly. Worship is not only daily. Worship is minute by minute. Some of you are saying, well, that, I don't understand it because worship is not an event. Worship is a lifestyle. And this morning, it's interesting that Jesus teaches us about worship from the least likely person that we think we would receive it from. Understand how he is teaching this. We learn about salvation in chapter 3 from a guy that should have known that the Messiah was coming to bring salvation, and he instructs him harshly, and that is in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And then in chapter 4, he teaches us about worship as he shows us the process of bringing someone completely lost, and everyone would agree was lost and messed up in the Samaritan women, to revealing himself as the Messiah, and he teaches us about worship through his interaction with her. As a matter of fact, 
This is the first time that Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. And he doesn't do it to the elite. He doesn't do it to the well-connected. He does it to the outcast. And he does that for a reason. That he is causing you and I to see that he is here for those that no one wants to deal with and for those who think they got it together, but they just need to realize that they're just as outcast as the person he's dealing with, with the Samaritan woman. And so he chooses her. And many will go, whoa, why on earth would you choose her? Because when we really stand before Christ, every last one of us is like the Samaritan woman, messed up, bad decisions time after time, hiding or coming to avoid my life and my sin, living according to my own pleasure, and dreading every minute of it. I know some of us say, well, I'm not dreading it. Mm. In those moments of happiness, maybe not. But in those down times, if we are honest with ourselves, we know where we are. <clears throat> and so this morning, Jesus finishes up with Nicodemus. And then we get an account on him baptizing, or not him, it actually says his disciples were baptizing, and he begins to baptize more than John, which was the intent, but to not have any friction, Jesus leaves. And in leaving, he he says, I must go through Samaria. Now, now some have suggested that the must was his was his divine call to go through Samaria, and that may be the case, but it still was the shortest, most likely route to get to Galilee from where he was, was to go through Samaria. Some of them who did not want contact with the Samaritans would take the long route. They would go all the way around. They would not want to go straight through because they didn't want to deal with the people that they had to go straight through with. And so we know the Samaritans were those that after the folks that were beneficial were taken away during the captivity, those that were left, how foreigners were brought in and that they mixed with them. And so as they mixed with them, what was produced over time were the Samaritans. And so these were people that were half Jews, but they were also from those that weren't seen as strong enough to be useful for those that took the people away in captivity. And so over the years, the Samaritans even chose a different mountain to worship. They did not want Jerusalem to be their capital or their center of worship, and so they chose Mount Gerizim. And so they had a temple on this other mountain, and they didn't accept all of what the Bible says. All they accepted were what we call the first five books or I mean, and for them, they only accepted some of that. And so they kind of had this mixed bag of religious folklore. I'll take some of what I want and mix it together and we'll call it something that looks like what the Jews believe. And so the Jews despised them greatly. Didn't want anything to do with them. And Jesus says, I must go through Samaria. 
I'm not taking the long route. I'm not avoiding these people. I have someone to meet because I need to meet these people, but I also need to teach everyone about what worship is. <clears throat> and this morning, when we look at when we look at God seeks true worshipers, I want to answer these questions. Who can be true worshipers? How are they found? When they are found, where does Jesus lead them? What obstacles are there to becoming a true worshiper? And then lastly, finally becoming a true worshiper. And so we're going to look at those this morning. But first, let's define worship. <clears throat> if it's not if it's not this thing that I come to, if it's not this gathering, I mean, worshipers come here and we do worship, but I hope this is not the climax, this is not the apex of your worship in your week. I hope this is not the only time that you come before the Lord. I hope this is not the only time that you open your Bible or your device and you begin to commune with God. If it is, God says, you've missed me six times. And on the seventh, you've decided to call me up. Let me ask you, if you handled your relationships personally and humanly speaking like that, what kind of relationship would you have? If you told them, I'll see you next week, one day, in about an hour and a half span, and boy, I hope we have a great relationship, you're fooling yourself. Do that with your husband or your wife. Do that with that person that you're trying to get to know and see what happens. And so the issue of communing with God is one that is every day. And it's not a checklist for us to feel guilty over. It is an opportunity and a time for him to, I mean, <clears throat> for him to speak to us, us to quiet ourselves before him. And I'm hoping that you're doing that in some fashion. And so what is worship? Uh, worship, that word um, proskuneo, actually says or means to do reverence. If you want to say it properly, here's what it means. To kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior. Wow. When was the last time you did that? That you kissed the ground. Well, what does that say? I, 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 I adore you. I respect you so much that I kiss the ground that <clears throat> you walk on. And you say, well, there isn't anyone that gets that level right. The only one worthy of that level. Now, I know some societies, and, and with their monarchs, that's what's expected. But the heart may not be there, although the actions may be. I remember the time when I, I didn't fall through with I me. Mean, I didn't follow through with it, but when I wanted to kiss the ground, and it wasn't because of a person, it's because I was on a plane that had the roughest ride I ever had. As a matter of fact, I was coming here to Indiana to visit my then, I, I think we were engaged, I'm not sure, to visit my then fiance. Love and make you do some real crazy stuff. And I was on that plane from New York, and they told me that a storm was coming in, so they canceled my late flight and said, you can catch an early flight. So I caught the early flight, and I got out there, and I should have known something was wrong. I am not a prop jet guy. I, I like the big planes. Give me the huge big planes. When it seats 30, I'm nervous. That's just me. 
And so we got on this thing, and it stayed in the clouds the whole trip from New York to Indianapolis. And it was the bumpiest ride. I remember the guy that was sitting across from me. I could see that his knuckles were red. I kid you not, as he gripped the chair, so much so that the flight attendant had to sit down because as she was trying to serve, she spilled the drinks when the plane dropped, dipped, and almost rolled. And I was like, Lord, I remember praying, going, all right, Father, I didn't expect to be going home like this, but okay. And as we landed, I got off, and of course, we didn't pull up to the gate. We pulled up, and we walked on the tarmac. I was real tempted to bow and kiss the ground. I thought about it, but then I thought these people would have thought I am nuts because I valued terra firma so much at that point that I was willing to do something out of the ordinary. Worship is you have this reverence for to the point where you put your whole self into respecting and reverencing that superior. And in this case, that superior is God himself. And so not that we need to walk around kissing the ground because I can't see where he's standing. What God is saying is that your life is one that reverences me in your actions every day because you view me as far superior to you. See, that helps me to stop telling God what to do. That's why I have a problem with a theology that says you can claim and tell God what you want. Yeah, I have a problem because I'm not on equal standing with God, and so I can't tell him anything. That's like me walking up right now trying to get into the White House to tell our president what to do. I, I won't even make it to the gate. Because they don't reverence me like I think I reverence me. And for some of us, instead of being a legend in our time, we're a legend in our own mind. And so we really need to realize that this whole reverence thing for God needs to be unlike anything else we have. Do you reverence him like that? Does he have that kind of pull on and over you, that, Lord, my lifestyle is growing in kissing the ground before you as I prostrate myself out before. That is the kind of respect I have for you. <clears throat> so who can be true worshipers? If we look at chapter 4, anyone, if, if, if Jesus comes to this woman and says, ultimately, to bring her to himself as a worshiper and instructs her on worship, then anyone can be. Let's kind of look at her life just a little bit. As we read through the story, we see that she is someone that comes to the well at around noon. That's like you going for your long run at one of the hottest times in the day. You don't do that. You go either early or you go late. Why? Because it's too hot. You don't, go to, you don't go to exert the most energy that you can exert during the time where it will be the most demanding on you unless you have no choice. And in this particular case, when she came to the well at, the, uh, <clears throat> at noon, 
when she comes to the well, there are a few things that will be happening. Number one, she'll probably be by herself. Number two, no one will come and approach and accost her because of her lifestyle. Number three is probably where she feels best because of what she, how she has lived. She doesn't want to deal with anyone. And so her actions demonstrate where she believes her life is. And so now she comes, and because understanding Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, that's what John tells us, just in case the reader didn't get that, you know, from before, Jesus comes up and does what no Jewish male, especially no rabbi, would do. And what does he do? He says to her, give me a drink. Now, understand many of the people that avoided Samaritans did so because in, in dealing with them, and especially with eating with them, and especially with using things that they used, you were in danger of being ceremonially unclean, perpetually. And so for Jesus to walk up probably shocked her when he says, give me a drink. To her, and obviously she knew by his look, probably by his attire, that he was Jewish. And she goes, as you read the story, hold on a second. How can you, being a Jew, ask me, a woman, for a drink? He's saying, you are out of order. This doesn't even compute. Y'all don't have anything to do with us. And at this point, we don't want to have anything to do with y'all. And so, but Jesus is doing something. What she doesn't understand for you and I and why we should not get upset when we see those that are sinful and dirty and unclean come amongst us is that Jesus sanctifies, he purifies, he cleans anything he touches. And so he's not going to become unclean because he's the one that cleans the unclean. He's the purifier. She didn't get that. We don't. And so when people come among us who are dirty, when people come among us who aren't fit to be in public, when people come among us that we normally wouldn't associate with, and I hope that's no one, God says, you better invite them in. You better sit with them. Why? Because Jesus says, I purify. So who can be worshipers? The lowest of the low? Or I'm going to go back to chapter 3 in Nicodemus, the highest of the high. And so you get in him. I love the contrast that John gives us. In chapter 3, when you look at it, Nicodemus is learned, he's, no, learned and educated, status, influential, high rank, probably wealthy, well-networked, and he comes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want to be seen by anyone else, but he wants to talk with you because he's curious about something. Something has stirred his heart, and Jesus does not treat him gently at all. But he tells him, don't be shocked, don't be surprised when I say to you, you who should know who I am, you who should know God's plan and God's word, he says, don't, you know, marvel not, I learned from King James, marvel not, or don't be surprised that I say to you, you must be born again. He told Nicodemus, you need to be saved. You need me. You need Jesus. How we say to people sometimes, you need Jesus, dude. Jesus was saying to him, you need me. You're coming to me by night because you don't want to be seen with me, 
but you need to be born again. Of course, Nicodemus, it went over his head like an airplane at 30,000 feet. It went over his head, and he was like, How? can I go back into my mother's womb? I was like, wow, dude, you really missed it. And then he explains to him what he meant. And then that's over. And then we see later, now he meets her. And we see the opposite. See, you got the learned and the educated and the schooled and the influential. And then Jesus comes and he meets the outcast, the despised, the unlearned. She was living by some sort of folklore mixed religion that she really didn't even believe herself. And here this woman was, she was on the opposite end of the spectrum. Life was so bad that she wanted to do her job alone and no one to bother her. And Jesus meets them both. So who can be a worshiper? The full spectrum. I love that. And for you and I, let's stop counting people out who can be worshipers of God. Let's stop saying, well, well God can never do anything in their life. He did it in yours. And if he can do it in mine, he can do it in anyone's. If he can have me standing here today proclaiming him to you, he can do it in anyone's life. And I have news for you. If he can have you sitting here listening to me, he can do it in anyone's life. So he comes down now. And so who are worshipers? Anyone. How are they found? Well, one of two ways. One, chapter three, Nicodemus, something about Jesus made him curious and he sought him out. And for some people that happens. Some of you might have been like that. You heard a message. You heard the word. You saw someone's life. Something made you curious, and Jesus drew you in, and you came and you found out. But sometimes God interrupts our lives when we are not even looking for him. And that is chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. She comes up. I mean, she is just going about her day. It started off like any other day would have started off. <coughs> And she gets up, and she's probably very familiar. I'm going to go and get some water, you know, because they didn't have the running water, and they couldn't turn the faucet on and just, all right, so she had to go, and, and she went and she did her job, and up comes this guy, and she still doesn't think it is a divine encounter. She thinks it is a disastrous interruption. And he says to her, how he found, he comes up and he interrupts. For some of us, that's our testimony. True worshipers, God interrupts your life. You think you got life going on or life is so miserable, you think this is how it's going to be all the time. And he says, he comes up and he interrupts and he says something to shock you that gets your attention. Give me a drink was something that shocked her because her response says it. What? Give you a drink? Man, get out of here. What did Jesus do to shock you? Or what is he doing trying to, I mean, attempting to shock you into paying attention? And he says, give me a drink. And boy, now what happens? The interaction starts. How are they found? They are interrupted. Where does he lead them? That's the third question. Where does he lead them? First thing he does is, he leads them to realize that what they call life isn't life at all. 
for you and I, where Jesus lit. If you know Christ, if you have trust in him, what you understand now is God led you to a point where what you thought was living wasn't living. And he introduced you to himself. But how did he do that? By showing you you? By showing you your life? By asking those questions that you don't want anyone to ask? By digging in your business that you don't want anyone to get into? By taking you places that you had cordoned off and you don't want to deal with? And so what does he do? He he says it here. So he comes up. After he says, give me a drink. And after she says, how do you ask me for a drink? He says, look, let me help you. He says, if you actually knew who you were talking with, you would would ask him for a drink and that he would give you this life eternal and that he would make it such that you would not have to seek water. Now Jesus is not talking about the physical water from the well. He's now talking about her quality of life. He is saying, you are not just thirsty physically. Spiritually, you are thirsty. You are dry. You are dying. I'm sorry, you are dead. And he says to her, you are seeking satisfaction, both physically, that's why you're here, and and spiritually, that's why you're here when you're here. And he says to her, you want satisfaction. And you, instead of saying, who are you to ask me for a drink? If you knew who it was that you were talking to, you would say, give me a drink. Where does he lead them? To realize that their life is not living, but then also to realize that they've messed up and they've failed. Now, this is not where he ends. Some of us think our job in life is to let people know how, how much they failed and messed up. And it's not. See, Jesus lets her know, but he's taking her somewhere. He doesn't just stop at the fact that, that her life is a wreck. He doesn't stop at the fact that her life is totally messed up. What does he do? He is leading her somewhere, but in order for her to be free, she has to face where she is. In order to be a true worshiper of God, you cannot play games with what's happening in your life. You've got to face it head on. And he takes her there. And so he says to her, Verse 11, the woman said to her, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Because he had told her about this living water that would spring up out of her life. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Uh, Actually, yes, but you know that. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will, will, will become in him, in him, not from the outside, but from the inside, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water, and here it is, so that I will not be thirsty or, this is the real reason, have to come here to draw water. I don't want to be shamed and embarrassed anymore. I don't have to go. I can stay at home. 
She still didn't get it. Give me this water so I don't have to deal with my life. I don't have to deal with what I've done. In other words, okay, I'll take your water if I can keep hiding. And Jesus said, can't do that. You can't keep hiding. I've got to expose your sinful life in order to deal with your sinful life. And he exposes it. And boy, that next thing he does is interesting. He says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Remember, there was asking about giving me living water. He says, go call your husband and then come here. And he puts his finger on that wound dead center in her life. Where does Jesus lead them? He leads them to see that their life is a mess. And ultimately, he is the only one that can fix it. And he says to her, go get your husband. Her response, you have to understand this in the conscience. She said, I have no husband. She wanted to end that. She didn't give an explanation. Jesus gave the explanation that she didn't ask for. But she didn't give an explanation. He said, you're correct. You've had five, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. Okay, I, I, I have to back up again because I wonder what her face did at that point, like yours and I would if that was us. And he says, you're correct. You don't have a husband. I know you're trying to avoid this topic. I know this is not what you want to talk about, but in order to get you to worship her, I need to go here. And he says, you're right. He says, let me break it down for you. You've messed up in this. And it's not saying that it's just her fault, but you know there's failure there. You failed in this five times and you've given up because the one that you're with is not the relationship that you need to have. Now you've gone to the point where I don't even need marriage. I don't need this mess, but I need to have my desires and my will fulfilled. So I'm going to do it totally. And understand, this is not today. People, uh, some people would balk today at that. But we're talking about back then. That was total shame for her. The reason she came at noon, you know, folk would see her and be like, yeah, that's the five time woman right there. Come on, you know. The shame that she came at noon is because her life did not measure up to society's standards. She was a mess. And Jesus doesn't throw her out. As a matter of fact, look at the grace that God is displaying. Why? Because this grace says, and this is good for you and I, this grace says, I know all the gory, messy, hard details of your life, And I'm here talking to you. I'm here leading you. I'm here having a conversation with you. I'm not here to throw you under the bus. I'm here to get you out the way to stop getting run over by the bus. But I need to deal with your life. And for some of us, boy, we would wish God would stop dealing with us. You don't want that. By his grace, he's dealing with you and I. He is not letting us sit in our sin. He is not letting us sit and just be okay. He's not letting us just to hide and to avoid. He is exposing. Why is he exposing? Because by his grace, he loves us. And he says, I can't let you stay there. 
And so now he gets her. Where does he lead? But here's the deal. What are the obstacles? We're coming down to the end. What are the obstacles? First thing she does, boy, she changes the topic. Like, totally. Go get your husband. I don't have any husbands. Ah, I perceive you're a prophet. Since you're a prophet, let me ask you about this debate here, about where we worship. Hey, what does that have to do with the fact of you don't have a husband, and he says, you're right, and he just opens up your life and tells you what you don't want to deal with. So tell me a little bit. Okay, since you're a prophet, let's have this conversation. You ever had that with people? You may be sharing the gospel, and boy, they go out in the left field. Well, let me ask you about this. What does it have to do with anything? They're avoiding. What are the obstacles? Avoiding dealing with yourself before the Lord. That's an obstacle. Let me read something to you about this whole thing of worship. Because, see, we are meant to, we were created to worship. That's how we're wired, every last one of us. Dr. Tim Keller in his book, Shaped by the Gospel, I was reading this, and there is a section where he is quoting someone else and talks about worship. And and this person that he's quoting is not even godly, and it's a sad story, but I want you to hear it. Hear it just well, real well. The person is David Foster Wallace. And he was speaking in 2005 to the graduating class of Kenyon College. Shortly after this, he would commit suicide. But here's what he says. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, I'm sorry, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they are unconscious. They are default settings. Now, here is from a guy who, he, he, he ended up still not getting it, didn't come to know the Lord. But here was the deal. He had gotten to the point where he understood, he was a novelist, understood something, that anything that we kiss the ground of and bow in reverence that is not God will destroy us. Anything. Anything that gets that quality of our life. I like what he says, it will eat you alive. And so the obstacles are avoiding. The obstacles are having the wrong object of your worship.
The, op the, the obstacles are unable to see past our own selfish desires. Jesus was talking about living water, and she was like, give me this water so I don't have to come here anymore. I can be done with this and all these people and you guys. I don't have to deal with this anymore. Still couldn't see it because she was set on satisfying herself. And for you and I today, if we're going to be true worshipers, we have got to let go of <coughs> satisfying ourselves. God will take care of that if you surrender yourself to him. But then he says, lastly, then he says to her, uh, actually, then she says to him, <clears throat> um, after he reveals her life, hold on a second, let me see. She asks this question, where to worship? We say this mountain, you say Jerusalem, Verse 21, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I love how the Lord answers by not answering. Where do we worship? This mountain and that mountain. Neither of them even matter. That's what he says to her. Neither of them even matter. So we ended that conversation. But since you went there, let me take you further as Jesus always does. I love it. Since you went there, let me take you further. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. Wow. He just told you, you don't even know what you're worshiping. You have no understanding of what you worship. It isn't even at that mount. He, she didn't realize for her, her worship was that she was going to find satisfaction in her relationships, and she wasn't finding it. And she was never going to find it. Tried five times or six times. You tried a different way. It still is not working. What are we trying to use and find that's going to bring us satisfaction? What, what are we searching for that we think is going to bring us ultimate? I know we give lip service to it being God. But what are we really searching for that will bring us satisfaction? Because that's what we run after. That's what we tire ourselves over. That's what we weary ourselves in running behind. Take a look at what gets the most time in your life. What do you spend the most time trying to do, accomplish? And you will see what is important to you. And then the right, he, he comes back and he says to her, <clears throat> but the hour, verse 23, but the hour is coming. I like this. It has been planned from time past. When he says the hour is coming, that is, that point in time is coming up that has been planned from time past. And he says, and now is here. So that time, that appointed time is now come. The season in which you were waiting for is here. He says the time is here. When? When what? When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, people understand this. Yes, there is debate over, is he talking about worship him in spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, or worship him in spirit, meaning from your heart? Yes. See, the issue becomes both are at play. I know there's debate over them both, but the issue becomes what he is telling us that there is a whom and a how to worship. 
See, understand, when she was speaking, she always spoke in worship in general terms. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Our fathers worshiped, and we worship. Jesus, in his response, always gave a clear object of his worship. Listen to what he said. He says, worship the Father. He said it twice, worship the Father. She spoke generally, worship. Worship isn't general. Worship must have an object. And so she, he says, worship the Father. They that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. She, the object of your worship needs to be God the Father. And in doing that, and in doing that, he says, it needs to, how should it happen? It needs to happen in two ways. It says, in spirit, meaning with your heart, but I know that you're my heart just because we resolve to worship from our hearts doesn't mean it happens. The fuel or the fire for worship for you and I is the Holy Spirit who touches our spirit and we respond in worship. So the the how is with both the heart and the mind because it is in spirit and it's in truth. The truth is God's word. It is worship according to God's word. Every form of worship is not acceptable to the Lord. We see that in Scripture. We saw that in the beginning. We saw that Cain's sacrifice, his act of worship, was not accepted. But Abel's was, and Cain got mad. Instead of changing his worship, he got mad that someone got it right and he didn't. Instead of changing to worship that God accepts, he decides to kill the one who was worshiping as God accepts. You and I have a choice. We can either live a lifestyle of worship that is acceptable and approved by God, or we can spend our life killing those, just trying to destroy those who aren't worshiping like I am or, or who are worshiping unapproved lives. We have it today. People today think, I can live like I want, go where I want, do what I want, say what I want, and claim I am worshiping God. And God says, you're wasting your time. You're not worshiping me. You're worshiping you. You are worshiping yourself because you are living out your heart's desires. Now, I'm not saying that you can't live out what God has put in you. Sure you can, but it's not what drives you. What drives you is to please God day by day, whatever you do. And sometimes it causes pain and discomfort. Sometimes it makes you unpopular. Sometimes you may stand alone, even amongst other so-called believers. And so the what of worship, I mean, the, the, the how of worship is in spirit and in truth. The whom of worship is God and the right way to worship. True worship is not an event nor a weekly encounter. It is an everyday way of living. Look at the response. Just then his disciples come back. Well, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, she cuts him off. He's going to tell us everything since you're telling me some of this. And boy, Jesus lays it out. First time he reveals himself on earth, 
he says, the one that you are seeking, the one that is coming, I'm him. And she's shocked. And as she drops her pots and runs away, look at what she does. I want you to see this. This is, this is, this is so wonderful. Here she was, unwilling to go get the non-husband that she didn't have. She was unwilling to go get the boyfriend that was in the house, but she runs to tell the village what just happened. See, she was trying to avoid, and Christ deals with her, opens her up, and now reveals himself to her, and she runs to tell everyone. See, the deal becomes before she was trying to hide, now she is a true witness. Why? Because Christ changes. True worshipers for you and I, true worshipers are people that have been changed by God, their sin exposed and dealt with. God heals us and cleans us up as he reveals that he is the answer for what we're looking at. And then as he does that, he empowers us to run and tell others. So I don't have a problem telling everyone. I don't have a problem. Why? Because I'm not here anymore to worship you guys. I'm not worried about what you think. I'm not worried that you think I'm nuts or I'm crazy because I now bow and kiss the ground before the true superior God himself. <clears throat> We're ending this. God seeks true worshipers. Are you one? Are you going to allow yourself to walk daily according to his will, realizing he gives life, and he is the one that approves of the way I worship. And so whether the music is playing and whether it gets my emotions going or not, I am going to worship him from the heart and according to his word, according to how he's revealed himself. Understand that is the only way you and I will be satisfied. God wants true worshipers. Are you willing to sacrifice your will to be a worshiper of him? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, by your grace, you've called us.